Chapter 13 of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 The Midland Brook. One knows quite well what a brook is, but I am rather puzzled as to how to define it. In scientific language, I suppose, it would be classed as a feeder or a tributary but neither of these definitions can be regarded as satisfactory. The first is too utilitarian, and the second is too suggestive of Caesar and other forms of exact knowledge. Nor do we find it more happily placed in the popular idiom. A brook is not a river, nor is it a ditch. The one name is inexact, the other insulting. A brook is but I am still puzzled, and must go to the task more subtly. When you find a stream that is neither so great that a reasonably active man, encumbered with rod, landing net, and creel, can without rashness attempt to jump across it at least three times in every mile, nor so small that it is capable of maintaining a few trout, then you may conclude that what you have found may be a brook. May, because there are also burns and becks, which would fulfil the conditions laid down. As a rule, it is easy to distinguish a burn or beck, except perhaps for the Hampshire beck, they are practically the same, from a brook. The main point of difference is mud. Your right-minded brook is rich in mud, while your burn has little or none, and seeks to make up for the deficiency by rocks and shingle. The Hampshire Beck, as far as I know it, is a thing by itself, a sort of miniature chalk stream, readily to be distinguished from a brook by the clearness of its water and the consistency of its bed, which is hardly more muddy than a northern burn. If there is mud, it is not a beck at all, whatever the natives may call it, but a brook. I have been at some pains to draw these distinctions, because I do not wish it to be thought that I am singing the praises of the small stream in general. The burn has received more than its share of adulation from angling writers, and I cannot but think that it has deteriorated in consequence. It has begun to realise its own importance and is puffed up with pride, and it now takes as good care of its trout as the itchin itself, which, when you consider that the said trout average some six to the pound, is clearly monstrous. There may perhaps be yet a burn or two in those very remote parts of the kingdom to which the invention of printing has hardly penetrated, which are still unspoiled by education." Mr. Andrew Lang knows one, and guides us to it after this fashion. When, no stranger, thou hast reached a burn, where the shepherd asks thee for the newspaper, wrapped round thy sandwiches that he may read the news, then erect an altar to Pyrrhus, god of fishermen, and begin to angle boldly. This does not help us much to the discovery of the burn, but it induces the reflection that sandwiches wrapped in newspaper are not at all nice, 
and unless the angler has reason to believe himself in the neighbourhood of the precious stream, I think he would do well to wrap his sandwiches in something else. But perhaps Mr. Lang has calculated on his doing so, and thus renders his burn doubly secure. For my part I know the burn not. Of those that are known to me, most are under the delusion that they are salmon rivers at the least, and worth about a guinea a foot in good golden currency. Nor would it now do any good if one endeavoured to undeceive them. The mischief has gone too far, and so they had better off be left to their wrong-headed pride. With the brook, the honest, solemn Midland brook, it is different. No one sings its praises, few people even realise its possibilities. It receives perhaps a certain amount of unthinking acknowledgement from the neighbourhood, as presenting some difficult jumps to a young horse, but only to one or two is it given to understand that in this sluggish obstacle to the field are such trout as those who fish in burns can only dream of. I grant that the appearance of the brook is against it. The water is thick, not muddy exactly, but of a dark complexion, which makes it impossible to see to the bottom, where it is over eighteen inches in depth. The bottom is principally mud or muddy clay, and the round, sullen pools are full of old stumps and branches. The whole is lamentably suggestive of eels. And yet it contains trout, real trout, short, thick fish, seldom weighing less than a pound, and sometimes as much as three pounds. Young farmer John knows all about them, and, in answer to discreet questions, admits that he generally gets a brace of fish, and often two brace, of which one at least is a two-pounder. Once he got as many as five brace in a single afternoon early in April. But then John only goes out when there has been a heavy storm and the water is muddy, and he fishes always with a big worm. He does not seem to think much of the brook and the trout. They are only fish to him, not the chiefest jewels in his crown, and worth more than their weight in gold. It might be wagered that he thinks much more highly of his rabbits. I feel that asking his permission to fish in the mile and a half that runs through his land, I am taking advantage of his ignorance of the proper balance of things. But, as usual, conscience is grasped by the throat and squeezed into acquiescence. "'Why, yes,' he says cheerily. "'Fish as much as you like. But I'm afraid you won't catch much with the water so low. The fact that the brook has not been found out has its advantages. Permission to fish in a recognised trout stream is not granted thus easily and ungrudgingly. In the event, the stock of fish in the water is not materially diminished. The brook is visited perhaps four times. The first day the catch is nothing at all. The next two days yield a brace of fish each, and the last day, there has been some rain in the interval, under favour of providence, 
results in four nice trout. But, as John observed, there are plenty left, and I take his word for it willingly, though it is only about once in a season that you can form any sort of estimate of how many trout a Midland brook really does hold. On some warm July evening, perhaps, they may suddenly take it into their heads to rise altogether, and then, in pools which you have fished over and over again, and in which you are ready to swear that there is not a single trout, you shall see five or six good fish feeding steadily. But on other days and evenings you shall not see a sign of fish. The brook seems absolutely lifeless, except for the water skaters and the occasional bubbles caused by an eel, and you fish on without the least encouragement, until you begin to doubt whether there is a trout in the stream at all. But if you are lucky enough to be on hand on the one evening, and happen upon the right fly, you may make up for a good many blank days. To be successful in brook fishing needs a long and patient apprenticeship. It takes years to understand even one brook, but there is this much of consolation in the matter, that when you thoroughly know one, you are much better able to cope with the others, for they all have many characteristics in common. They all have much the same variation of stream and pool, of mill-head and mill-tail. They all abound in old stumps and willow roots, and they all have an occasional waterfall or weir with a floodgate in the pool above it. So it comes about that the best places for trout in one brook have their counterparts in another, and the practised eye can detect them at once. It does not follow, of course, that the fish are to be caught, but it is something to know where one has the best chance of catching them, and to feel that one is not, through ignorance, fishing in spots where no trout can possibly be. Now, for brook fishing a man must have an open mind. He must not be wrapped up in theories, or too submissive to public opinion. If one method of fishing seems to him more likely to succeed than another, he must be prepared to adopt it, and must, to a certain extent, disregard what is considered dignified in a sportsman. He should be ready to... But it occurs to me that all this preamble may have prepared the reader for the worst, so I hasten to say that I do not mean the setting of night lines or the use of a net. I only intended delicately to introduce the question of the worm. The matter is simple enough in reality. Some parts of a brook cannot be fished with a fly by reason of the bushes and trees on the banks. In other parts, except on that one evening, the angler might throw flies for ever without getting a rise. Therefore, if these parts are to be fished at all, there is only one thing for it, a worm. Even in the parts of the stream where a fly can be used with effect, I do not stand out for strict and invariable orthodoxy. An Alexandra, the pot-hunter's pet, will sometimes kill a brook trout which would not look at an ordinary fly, and in that case I think its use perfectly legitimate. In fact, it comes to this. 
Brook trout are so hard to catch by any means short of actual violence that the angler need have no scruples about trying anything up to the said limit. He will have been fortunate if at the end of a day's fishing, during which he has tried every known lure, his basket contains two brace of fish, and may justly look for applause even though he took them all with a worm. I'm not sure, though, that the worm is altogether the best bait, except when the water is very thick. A rather large March brown has served me excellently at times, and as a general rule I should say that the fly quite holds its own. Whether it should be used wet or dry depends entirely on local conditions. As a rule, one is only too thankful to be able to get a fly onto the water anyhow, but here and there one always finds a certain amount of open water, and if in it a fish or two may be seen rising, a dry fly may be put over them with advantage. Dry or wet, only one fly should be used. It should be rather larger than those employed on a river. There is also another method, which I have not mentioned, well worth trying on summer evenings, and that is dibbling with a real moth or some other large insect. I incline to think that the man who fishes in this way is the truest disciple of Isaac Walton, who loved it beyond all other kinds. But how you shall get your fish out when you have hooked him is entirely a matter for yourself to arrange with providence. Prepared then to fish as seemeth him best, the angler will proceed to investigate the stream. Let us take Farmer John's water as the scene of his operations, for it is typical of the brook in general. It includes two disused and dilapidated mills, about a mile apart, with their mill pounds and mill tails, backwaters and weirs, if that name can be given to little falls about five feet wide. As the mills have not been working for years, there is only a trickle of water running under their wheels and the tails below are shallow and weedy, and not worth fishing. The pounds above are, in consequence, stagnant and also weedy in parts, but they are fairly deep, in places as much as five feet, and they hold the largest trout in the brook. The lower one widens out to about thirty feet, close to the mill, and is some forty yards long. The other is longer, narrower, and deeper. It is not of much use to fish them in the daytime, but in the evening a fish or two may be found rising round the hatch-hole above the weir, or at the top end where the water is shallower. Then a fly at the end of a long line may tempt a heavy fish. In the daytime their best places to fish will be the little weir pools and the backwaters below them because the main current of the brook runs by this channel now that the mills are not working. The weirs are the choicest spots of all, so we will make our way to the lower one first. At first sight it does not look promising for fishing. From the mill pound it is a drop of about six feet to the pool below, and the angler finds that the wall above is the only point from which he can possibly fish for the weir pool is a sort of arbour, framed in bushes, 
through which no human ingenuity could insinuate a rod unless an axe were employed for half an hour first, while across the middle of the pool, just where it is deepest, lies the trunk of a recumbent willow with projecting branches. This leaves about three square yards for fishing, and that leaves no room for sentiment. A worm is essential to the fishing of this place, and with a worm shall it be fished. The angler has brought a stiff little fly-rod, nine feet in length, which is sturdy enough for worm-fishing, and at the same time able to throw a fly a long distance when a heavy, tapered reel-line is used with it. It is just the thing for brook-fishing, in which power is required, combined with shortness. He fits it up, and attaches a strong worm-trace, weighted with a small bullet, to the running line. He uses a large hook, on which he puts a small lobworm, hooking it in the middle, and once only, for this gives it more freedom to wriggle, and so attract the fish. Then he drops his baited hook into the rush of the fall, and waits. Thames trout-fishers know well that the trout in a weir lie just where the water seems roughest, right under the foam. The fact is that immediately under the fall the commotion is merely superficial. Deep down the water is quite calm, and the fish may rest there in comfort, and if any tempting morsel comes over their heads, they can seize it in an instant. The worm has not been in the water a minute before there is a slight twitch at the line, and the angler knows that he has a bite. There is no violent rush. The fish is at home, and need not move more than an inch or two. An unpractised hand would hardly realise that the tremor meant anything, but the angler understands it, and after giving the fish a few seconds to get the worm well into its mouth, he strikes. Then is proved the wisdom of his strong tackle. It is no joke at any time to play a trout of a pound and a half in three square yards of water with certain breakage all round. Add to this the fact that the man with the rod is standing six feet above the fish, and you get as delicate a combination of difficulties as could well be imagined. He can do nothing but hold on and trust in Providence. Providence does not desert him, and the trout's repeated efforts to reach the old tree and the bushes are checked by the uncompromising policy forced upon the man, and at last the victory is won, or rather the fish is beaten. Then arises another problem. How is it to be landed? The victor casts himself on the ground, and tries to reach down over the wall with his landing net, but finds he cannot come within six inches of the water. He must hazard all. Still lying down, he lays the rod on the grass, and takes the line in his left hand, and then, with his heart in his mouth, lifts the fish out of the water until he can put the net under it. It is a risky manoeuvre, but good tackle will always stand more strain than one expects, and one can afford to take an occasional liberty with it. The principal danger is that the fish, finding itself in the air, may begin to kick, 
or the hook may lose its hold. But our angler succeeds this time, and secures his first fish, and is mightily pleased about it. There's nothing more important to success in brook fishing than to catch one's first fish early in the day. It prevents the despair and incredulity which are only too likely to fill the soul when one has angled for hours without seeing a trace of a fish. He puts his trout in his basket on a bed of long grass and considers his next move. He must give the weir pool a rest, though if he returns to it presently it is quite likely that it may yield him another fish. The little backwater, which winds for some hundred yards of ripple and pool before it joins the main brook, seems to him the most likely place, so he determines to fish it next. It is a tiny stream, not more than a yard wide in parts, though the pools at the bends are all of a fair depth. It is overhung with trees and bushes, and is altogether most difficult to approach. Moreover, the water is much clearer than that of the main brook, so clear, in fact, that it would be worse than useless to fish it with a worm. He must try and throw a fly on such bits of it he can get at. Accordingly, he takes off his worm trace and replaces it by a short fly cast on which is a long march brown. Then he takes a circuitous route through the meadow to the point where the two streams meet. There is generally a trout here, so as he approaches the bank he finds it expedient to go on three legs, as Charles Kingsley phrases it, until he is within about two yards of the water. Then, crouching as low as he can, he endeavours to flick his fly between two willows about four feet apart into the pool. As happens three times out of four in this sort of fishing, the March Brown refuses to have anything to do with water or trout, and clings tenaciously to one of the willow twigs. The angler jerks at it, hoping to free it without moving, but the wretched thing only clings the tighter. What happens then depends on the nature of the man. He may pull till the cast breaks, put on another fly, and endeavour to reach the water again, or he may rise patiently and release the willow. In the one case, the odds are that the second fly will join its fellow on the twig, for in brook-fishing accidents have a habit of repeating themselves. In the other, any trout that may be lying abroad in the pool will of course see him and depart hurriedly. After this occurrence he goes cautiously along the bank, lurking behind trees, crouching behind bushes, and losing flies. I would draw a more cheering picture if I could, but truth is precious, and in fact he does lose many flies. It requires a deal of skill, and more of luck, to flick a fly with any accuracy, and flick he must for there is not a spot in the whole backwater to which it is possible to make a legitimate cast. Flicking a fly is an indescribable process by which you make it pass round or through a tree, under a branch and over a bush, until it falls safely upon a square foot of water. 
If he gets round, under, and over the initial obstacles, the chances are largely in favour of its alighting on the bush, which always waits for it on the opposite bank, and which is generally inaccessible. Therefore it stands to reason that flies must be lost. Thus, for thirty yards or so, he wrestles with circumstance without moving or seeing a fish. But presently he comes to a better spot, which is clear of bushes on his own side, though there is a tree. Kneeling behind it, he can get his fly onto the water more or less easily. He peeps round the trunk and finds that he overlooks a tiny rapid above a pool, and there, by all that is fortunate, is a trout lying in the channel between the weeds, a light-coloured fish of about a pound. He trembles a little as he prepares to flick for his nervous work fishing for a trout when you can see him, but it does not prevent him from flicking the fly just where it ought to go, a few inches above the trout's nose. Much flicking and little water have dried the March Brown, and it floats nicely downstream. As, other things being equal, it was morally certain he would, the fish takes it in a business-like way as soon as it reaches him, and the angler strikes. For about a quarter of a minute there is a sharp tussle. The trout dashes about in the shallow water, and the man, in the foolishness of his heart, thinks he has him. But, finding that the weeds are not strong enough to help him, the fish soon turns and bolts downstream into his hole, and then the fly comes away. It is disappointing, but natural. Pike tackle would hardly hold a trout in this water, where it is only a distance of a foot or two to the nearest root, and only by the merest luck could a light fly cast be expected to do so. With human inconsistency, the angler, who in his calmer moments would defend the beauty of brook fishing against all comers, mutters a wrathful wish that he had had the Atlantic or some other open piece of water in which to play the fish. Rather humbled, he then continues his way upstream. In a deep, dark pool at a bend, he sees another fish rise, and again he manages to flick his fly aright. The trout takes it almost before it touches the water, and retires under a root with promptitude. The angler vows that this time he will not be done out of his lawful prey, and without pausing to doff boots or stockings, he climbs down the bank and commits himself to the deep. He sinks into the mud at once. Sinks horribly. But nothing daunted, he wades out into the pool until he can reach the root with his net. Then the fly comes away again, and he returns to shore wet, muddy, and furious, and, sad to say, sits down and abuses brooks and brook-fishing for many minutes. Eventually, however, he becomes calmer, reflects that, after all, he has one good fish in his basket, and decides to go back to the weir-pool and try for another with a worm. This he does, but not getting another bite, he soon leaves it, and turns to the main brook. 
For about a hundred yards above the floodgate and the weir is a quite considerable stream, deep, sluggish, and in parts twenty feet wide. Today it wears its most lifeless aspect. His fly falls absolutely unheeded. Presently he finds himself by the side of a big pool below a brick bridge built for Farmer John's hay wagons. There is not a sign of a moving trout, but he fishes over it carefully, and at last, almost under the arch, he gets a rise and hooks his fish. It fights gamely, but in this open pool it is comparatively simple work to land it, and it duly goes into his basket a nice little trout of nearly a pound. Then he goes on upstream, feeling more cheerful. There is, it must be confessed, rather a monotony about the pools of a brook, especially if one is not sure whether they contain trout, and one can never be sure unless one has seen them on that July evening. They are solemn, I might almost say sulky, pieces of heavy water, and it seems of little use to fish them. Our friend catches nothing and sees nothing for the next half-mile, though he tries the worm as well as the fly. Then, at a sharp corner, he finds a pretty gravel shallow, at the head of which he gets another rise. He misses the fish, though, and consoles himself with the thought there was only a small one. A quarter of a mile higher up, the brook runs under a road, and on a shallow above the bridge he sees another fish, a big fellow, which, unfortunately, also sees him, and darts back under the bridge. Yet another quarter of a mile, and he comes to the second mill. The backwater here is short and shallow, but the weir is very promising, forming quite a large pool at the back of the mill. It is not easy to fish, as it is surrounded by tall osiers, but by kneeling on the bank and flicking on rather a large scale, he manages to get enough line out. There's very little water coming over the weir now, and the pool is clear and still. The bottom is covered with that dark green mossy weed in which trout love to lie. At the very first cast, a trout rises out of the weed and is hooked, but it is only a little thing of an ounce or two, and he puts it gently back. It is not till he puts his fly right under the fall that he gets another rise, but then it is a good one, and a heavy fish feels the steel. It shows fine sport, and rushes about all over the pool, running out his line in grand style. But there are no dangerous places except a tree in the farthest corner, from which he manages to turn it, and in a few minutes he has it in his net, a dark, burly fish, weighing two pounds all but an ounce. The pool is too much disturbed now for further fishing, so he leaves it, uh, climbs up a high bank, and finds himself on the edge of the mill pond. Farmer John's water ends with the meadow in which the pound lies, so he has only about a hundred yards more water at his disposal. The pound is narrower and deeper than the one below, and here and there it is overgrown with bushes. He follows it to the end of the meadow, looking out for a rising fish, but though it is now six o'clock, he cannot find one, so he goes back to the deepest part by the hatch hole 
and sits down to wait till he does see a rise. To while away the time, he puts up his worm tackle and throws it in on the chance of getting an eel. For a long time it remains untouched, but at last the line quivers a little, and he picks up his rod so as to be in readiness to strike, for you must not give an eel too long, or he will swallow the hook and cause you great tribulation. Soon the line begins to move slowly off, and he strikes. For nearly a minute the eel, or whatever it is, moves slowly about in a small circle, and the angler congratulates himself on an easy capture. Then, without the least warning, there is a tremendous rush. Twenty yards of line are off the reel before he realizes what's happening. A great fish leaps out of the water a long way off, and all is silence. The angler winds in his line, reflecting on the perversity of things. It is not often that one can meet with one of the very big fish that these brooks sometimes hold, and when one does, it is a pity to mistake it for an eel. That trout may have been anything over five pounds. After this, everything else seems of small importance and though our angler catches another trout of about a pound in the weir pool, he has to a great extent lost interest in his fishing, and presently he takes his rod down and starts on his four-mile walk home. As things go, he has not done all badly, and his two brace of trout are at any rate well earned. Moreover, the big one is still there, and he can come again. End of chapter 13